And this is... The Sausage of Science. Oh, hey, Mike. We've got a quiet third guest host for the <laughs> moment. Our quiet third guest host is my co-host for my other podcast, The Inking of Immunity, Mike Smetana. Hey, Mike. Hey, guys. Mike is setting up the Whisper booth for our guest that we're getting ready to talk to. So today's a little bit unusual. As listeners to the show, longtime listeners will know, we often will have our guest visitors to our campuses come on our show. And at Alabama, we have an evolution speaker series called the Alabama Lectures in Life's Evolution. And so not everybody who comes to talk about evolution is a human biologist because everything that is living is affected by evolution, as Theodosius Dobshansky pointed out in every single evolution talk ever since, quotes, nothing in biology makes sense except in light of evolution, air quotes care is giving us. So the beginning right before nothing and right after evolution is where those air quotes belong. Keep that in mind while I tell you who today's Aaliyah lecturer is. His name is Dr. Gavin Naylor, and he is the director of the Florida Program of Shark Evolution. Yes, I said shark, shark evolution. So today we are expanding our vertebrate evolution horizons. We are not going to non-vertebrates, but we are definitely stepping away from the mammals. And we're also We've... stepping away from bones. We... No bones. It's all oh, cartilage. Yeah. Okay, let me finish the title. The Florida Program of Shark Research and Curator and Professor at the Florida Museum of Natural History at the University of Florida. We did have one of the curators from this museum come to the University of Alabama and talk about horse evolution several years ago. I think that was before we did the podcast. But for those listening, wondering why on a human evolution podcast, we would talk to other evolutionists. One of the most profound talks I ever did see was that talk on horse evolution because of how it relates to how we depict human evolution. And his point at that juncture was when you put everything on a museum display in a line to show the change over time, it makes it look like unilinear evolution. Mm -hmm. And the take home message from that was that our picture of chimpanzees turning into australopithecines turning into homo erectus turning into humans might seed some of the misconceptions that we struggle just just a little also horse evolution is wild yeah it's pretty cool right like when you show students pictures of you know pre-horse of what we know as horses today they're like no no that's not well, related you, no. you think that's <laughs> wild you want to know what we're talking about today sharks walking sharks that is impressive hello Hello. Awesome. Welcome, Gavin, to Thank the you. Sausage of Science. Thank you so much for taking your time out of what I assume is an incredibly packed schedule on campus. It's uh, been great. To... Yeah, I've met lots of different people. It's been fun. Oh, good, 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 good. We are actually more or less a human biology podcast, but we okay. are evolutionists, and we take advantage of every opportunity to talk to anyone from a related field because it, it is all obviously tied together. Mm -hmm. So, um, and the way that we usually start off by asking about the scientist mm -hmm. and how they got into their field and why they decided to become an academic. So if you would enlighten mm. us, we'd, we'd be grateful. So I wish I could give you a linear story, which said that I've always wanted to do X since I've been a small child, but I was born in uh, Tanzania and grew up in East Africa and uh, was surrounded by all this amazing wildlife, elephants and giraffes and wildebeest. And mostly, I really saw myself uh, being a, uh, a game ranger. 
So I had no intention to be a scientist. And then uh, I lived in many different countries around the world. My father's an exploration geologist, and they eventually sent me off to a boarding school because uh, in England, because I wasn't learning as much as perhaps they thought I should have done. And so I went to boarding school, and then I went to university in England. And uh, I was a fairly poor student as a, as a university. I got A's in the classes I really liked, and I didn't attend the ones that I didn't. And so I got F's for those, and so the mm. GPA was pretty poor. I was telling some students earlier on, spent a lot of time as an undergrad playing rugby and having lots of fun. And then uh, I... Uh, what position in rugby? I, I was rugby. wing forward on the blind side. Forward. Oh, all right. Yeah. So I was a lock or a prop, depending oh, on goodness. who the other prop was. <laughs> oh, right. All right. All right. So you chaps are the strong ones in the middle. So, yeah, yeah. And so then I finished my undergrad at Durham University. And then uh, I went to the Red Sea. I did some diving. I w worked as a volunteer at the Bermuda Biostation, mostly cutting the grass, things like that. And then I helped some of the scientists there build up their setups, which was fun. And they were looking at coral bleaching and things. And uh, it seemed kind of fun. And one of the scientists said, you should go to graduate school. You'd be good in graduate school. And I said, what's graduate school? <laughs> and, <laughs> and so... I couldn't get into graduate school in England. Uh, I wanted to work on elephant behavior. And so I applied to uh, universities in different parts of the world. And I was accepted at the University of Maryland. And then I went to the PhD program. And then at the uh, University of Maryland, I uh, I worked hard as a grad student. I, I learned my lesson as a, as a debauched undergrad. And I, I basically uh, got my act together a little bit better. And I started out as a uh, neurobiology student. And I really liked, you know, the organization of the brain. And then I met a professor called Lin Chao, a Chinese-Brazilian, who's probably the most influential person uh, that I'd ever uh, sort of come across. And he told me about evolution, and he was studying evolution of sex in viruses that don't have sex, and talking about recombination and talking about why there's two sexes, why you couldn't have more sexes. And he was fascinating and really clear thinking. And he basically converted me to wanting to study evolution. And then I worked with a professor, Gary Vermeer, Akira Vermeer, who's Dutch and blind since birth. And uh, he was a paleontologist. And I wanted to find a group of animals that I could study the molecular evolution to understand how they had diversified, but also that had a good fossil record so that I could understand, compare the fossil information with the molecular information. And he suggested that I look at uh, carnivores, uh, mammalian carnivores, which is very exciting to me because I knew about carnivores from Africa. And a chap at the American Museum was already looking at them. So I couldn't do that. And then, of course, I wanted to do mollusks because Gary Vermeer was a malacologist and somebody else was doing that. And so he said, what about sharks? So I thought, oh, mm, so I looked and nobody was doing it on sharks. So that's why I ended up, you know, looking at the evolution biology of sharks. So I started looking at molecular evolution in these animals. I went around the world collecting all sorts of specimens. And I had lots of shark jaws that I collected from fish markets around the world. And then the American Museum... They were making a big dry collection of shark jaws, and they encouraged me to apply for a postdoc up there. Really, they, they didn't really want me. They just wanted my collection. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so I, I started up at the American Museum as a postdoc in paleontology. You know, you get in that academic environment, and everybody else wants to, you know, become a professor and apply these jobs. And I sort of osmotically decided that that was probably the career I should pursue. Mm. So I would love to tell you that I had this burning drive to be a professor since I'm a small child, but really I sort of reversed into the future with lots of, you know, with a blindfold on. So I mean, and now that I'm doing it, I love it. It's great. It's fun. 
we get so many interesting origin stories with this show and most of them are not these linear things. Is that right? We, we, oh, yeah, we, oh, okay. we get lots of winding paths and right. things. So that's why we talk about it because there's okay. this, this idea and stereotype that it is linear and it is this like perfect step-by-step -step thing and it's so ever rarely that. It almost right. never is, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. We're going we're gonna to get into your work a little bit now. And sure. this kind of ties in, you know, the molecular component of the, of the sure. kind of work that you do. So we read a recent Nature article uh, towards mm -hmm. complete and error-free genome assemblies of all vertebrate species, mm -hmm. on which you are one of many, many, many Hundreds, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So Arang Ri, is, she was the person that was the driving force behind that. She basically developed all the algorithms to do all these assemblies. And uh, she, uh, Arang, and actually... My first graduate student, uh, Olivier Federigo, is the joint first author with Arang. Oh, and, very nice. and Olivier uh, is responsible for sequencing all of those genomes. Mm -hmm. And then Arang does all the assemblies. Uh, so, yeah. Nice. So. And so this is a massive, massive project yeah. uh, that proposes to generate high quality, complete reference genomes for 70,000. So folks at home can understand 70,000 extant vertebrate species called the Vertebrate Genome Project. So can you tell us a little bit about this and like what you hope to come out of this project with having all of these genome sequenced and then what part you played? A lot of genetics has been driven by advances in technology. And we have new technologies that allow us to sequence huge lengths of DNA very inexpensively. So People have capitalized on this. And, and if we know the complete genome of an organism, you may remember that when people were planning to, to sequence the complete genome for the human, people said, oh, well, once we've got the complete human genome, we'll know everything about how to build a human. We'll know, you know, how to reconstruct it. Well, that turned out not to be true at all. But the genomes are useful. And developmental biologists like to understand the networks that actually shape development of organisms. I mean, life is a really unusual thing. We go from a single cell and then it splits and then we get more copies of cells and then cells start to differentiate. And then all of this is happening on the fly. Growth is an amazing thing. I mean, we just think that things get bigger. But growth is, is an incredible trick that an organism goes from a single cell and actually expands in size and takes in nutrition and energy and grows all the time, it's actually, you know, surviving. So it's on the fly, a changing form, cells die and they're replaced. And this thing, you know, ends up as an adult and then goes through a breeding stage. And then the whole cycle starts over again. So it's a really, really clever trick. And at some level, this machinery of this process is orchestrated, choreographed by information from the genome. And so if we're trying to study exactly how this choreography works, we need to have a really good reference genome. And there's been lots of genomes that have been established, but it turns out that some molecular biologist says that, well, we found this protein that's expressed. And it seems to be really useful for binding these cells together at this particular stage of development. And then they say, well, let's go and have a look at the reference genome and see what it is. And they blast it, which basically means see you know, where it fits on the reference genome, and they can't find it. And that's because these reference genomes are missing that key transcription factor. So we don't know what it is and we don't compare it to these other genomes. So it became very abundantly clear that now that we've got these technologies that allow us to get long read sequencing, we really need to invest in getting really accurate genomes so that developmental biologists and other people can use these genomes 
to understand the developmental process. And I'm not a developmental person, but we use the genomes. It turns out that your genome is like a time machine. It has all the information of you that, and your wiring, but also about the population you came from. So it's like this magical box which tells you that you came from a large population or a small population. And we can actually use genomes to reconstruct the history of a population from which the individual came from using something called the coalescent theory. So these analyses we can do from a single genome can tell us this individual came from a population with an effective size that was 100,000. And then 10,000 years ago, it had collapsed and then it had expanded. So we can reconstruct using algorithms the history of population change from a single genome. And that's what we like to do. But the original motivation was for developmental biologists. Olivier, who was my first PhD student, and Eric Jarvis, who initiated the vertebrate genome project. So Eric is interested in the genetics of bird song. He wants mm. to know how birds learn songs. And so he needed good genomes so that he could see, you know, the expression in the brain of birds that are good vocal learners and compare them that weren't. So what makes a parrot able to learn and versus the, you know, the relatives that can't. And so he wanted to compare you know, a lot of comparative biology is like that. You see an animal that can do something, then you find its closest relative that doesn't and say, how are they different? And uh, then you sort of look for the genetic uh, fingerprints and then you find those genes and then you can map them to the genome and say, what, what is that gene that these vocal learning birds are doing, are using? Well, you can't do that if you don't have a really accurate genome. So Eric was finding that a lot of these genes that were involved in birds learning, he couldn't find out what they were because the genomes were not assembled properly. And that, of course, is quite forgivable 10 years ago because we didn't have technologies to be able to read, you know, hundreds of thousands of bases. But now we do, and we basically get fragments of these genes and we overlap them end to end. And we do it like hundreds of times, something called coverage. And when we do that lots and lots of times, we can get a sense of what the genome is. There's still problems and still the genomes are not perfect. And the other thing is, once you've got a genome for one species, I mean, you and I have got different genomes. If we look at the genomes of everybody in the world, they're all different. And so there's something called the pan genome, which is all of the different genomes for a particular species that will be variable in length and in genes. You may have a few genes deleted that I don't, and I may have some that you don't. And so getting one genome for one species is really a start. And Eric, uh, who is a wonderful person and a very visionary, has uh, asserted that we're going to try to get a genome for every described vertebrate species. Mm. And so that's the goal of the Vertebrate Genome Project. And he started up with different phases. And so what we first phase is we're going to get 260 genomes from one representative of each order of vertebrates. And so uh, I work with sharks, and so Eric and Olivier has relied on me to get the tissue samples from representatives of different shark species. And so, so that's my role in the project, is making sure that the animals that we sample, we get blood from, from animals that we document and photograph, and the tissue is super high quality, and that we can do what's called annotation. We annotate the genes afterwards. And so that's my role, is the sharks and rays. and Eric's taking care of all the birds, and we've got some frogologists down there, and we've got some snakeologists and mammologists, and so all these different groups contribute the, the various genomes. And that, so that's the first phase. 
And then that's only going to give us 260 genomes. And then the next phase is to do it at that second phase at the at the family level. And so we're going to refine it that way. And we can learn a lot about the evolutionary process when we've got all of these genomes. We could say, well, here's the vertebrate tree. Which genes got switched on? Which ones were lost? When we look at traits and we see that humans have got this ridiculous organ between their ears that seems expanded, we can say, you know, well, what are the genes associated with this particular transition from the ancestor of the current sister taxa to humans being, you know, chimps and bonobos and humans, the common ancestor of those three, there was a transition and some became bonobos, some became chimps and some became mm. humans. And, and if we've got the whole genomes, we might be able to get a sense. What is the, at least the genetic component that's associated with that transformation? Of course, we don't know the environmental component, which can play with it and interact with it, but at least it gives us some sort of a start. And we can do that for any group of animals. So yeah, that that's a... is super exciting. The project, it's going to take some time. Uh, I think right. so this article that came out in Nature earlier this year suggested 10 years, which means you guys will be doing 125 genomes per week. And just <laughs> My guess, given that 10 years ago we didn't have the tech and now we do, is that in 10 years from now the tech will advance a lot. So I wonder if that latency is going to cause any issues with the high quality aspect of that or, or if there are any other problems that you guys already can foresee in accomplishing this. Absolutely. So there are multiple problems. So, so one is that, you know, even just after two years, some of the genomes we did two years ago aren't as good as they could be now because we've got new algorithms. So we're always improving. Long reads from a company called Pacific Bio, Pac Bio, allow us to get bits of DNA that are about 20,000 base pairs long. The previous best opportunity was something that was about 150 base pairs long. And then there's a company called Oxford Nanopore that allow us to get, you know, strings of continuous nucleotides that are, you know, maybe 200,000 bases long. And so these technologies are always changing. And the longer they are, sometimes you get very long ones, but they're not accurate. And so we have to get lots of copies of them and sort of take our best guess when you've got 50 copies and 49 of them say an A and one says a T. Mm. We generally say, well, the one with the T is probably not right. That's an error. So if we get enough of them, we can then get a sense of the accuracy too. And so that's a problem. But also the quality of the input DNA is really important, especially as we get longer and longer reads the quality of the tissue that you get needs to be really top notch. And we can probably get high quality tissues to get good DNA for the first phase fairly easily. And for the family level, it might be possible too. But then we start getting rare animals. And, you know, one of the animals I would like to get the tissue for is a bramble shark, Echinorhinus brucus. And these occur in deep water and they are fished for in India. Occasionally they show up. So, you know, maybe like one or two a year. So do I just go down to India and wait there and eat really delicious food for a year? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so these are the kinds of questions So getting the material has actually become quite challenging. And a lot of birds, you know, we'd like to get the genome sequence for the ivory-billed woodpecker. And some people are actually using these genomes to bring some of these animals back. But the ivory-billed woodpecker is believed to be extinct. But we might be able to, if we can get the feathers from some of the specimens, to be able to get the genome information from some of these recently extinct animals. But the DNA is not going to be very good. So we're not going to be able to get the long reads that we want. But if we maybe we just get a pileated woodpecker, and that we can get, and then we can get short reads from the ivory-billed woodpecker, we'll see where the ivory woodpecker is different. And so we can reconstruct things that way. So 
We're always open to new suggestions. Technology provides opportunities. And sometimes some of the things that we think technology is going to solve are actually solved by very old issues. So, you know, one of the things is getting good quality DNA. And that's very hard to get from a dried feather in a museum collection. It's much easier to get it from, you know, a blood sample from a zoo animal. So mm. zoos are being, you know, increasingly relied upon to get these samples. And as so many of these vertebrates are going extinct, the pressure is on to understand. I mean, each life form is this amazing collection of interacting components. They've solved millions of problems. And a life form is subjected to challenges all the time and overcomes them. And as a consequence of hundreds of thousands, millions of generations of exploration. And so every time an animal goes extinct, you know, it takes with it all of this technology. There's so much we can learn that we would be able to make new technology with if we just, you know, understood how these animals did things, right? So there's yeah. a, a whole field where sort of biomimetics, where we can we can mimic what the natural world does. Well, we can't do that if they've gone extinct. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so you could make a very good economic argument. Uh, most of the arguments are aesthetic arguments about conservation, but you could make a strong economic mm -hmm. argument that you wouldn't have all these patentable technologies and just burn them. Mm -hmm. Like the old libraries, you wouldn't just burn them down to the ground. And so because of all of the secrets that would go with them, the knowledge and the understanding. Well, we haven't passed all the knowledge and the understanding of, of these animals yet, but they're locked in, these animals. And if they're alive, then in the future we can learn, you know, how they process information, how they take chemicals and turn them into other chemicals. And a classic example I have two 12-year-old twins. Actually, they're 13. They just turned 13 yesterday. And my son is obsessed with mimicking plants to make machines that photosynthesize, make carbohydrates, and then turn that into sausage. He said, I think we can take sunlight and water and carbon and turn them into different foods, you know, just like the natural world does. And in, in principle, that's possible. You know, plants do that all the time. And then animals eat those plants and then they get transmogrified with various different proteins. You know, in the future, we might be able to do that. We might be able to make, you know, with a machine, you could make, uh, you know, spaghetti bolognese, right? You know, you'd have a spaghetti bolognese machine and it would start with water and carbon and a few proteins and amino acids and alike. But we can't do that if we've got no trees to model things after. And so I think that people are not yet appreciative enough of what the natural world harbors. That is a very high level research interest and hobby for a 13 year old first of all right yes. that is impressive <laughs> it's like, yeah i wasn't there i was just reading the hobbit uh, well, no 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 was i i wasn't either i was chasing snakes in the bush so yeah, yeah. but it led to good things eventually right. and absolutely i mean people hear all about you know the the potential uses of spider silk that's right. one that you hear about all the time but i feel absolutely. like the rest of the animal and plant world do not get the same kind of attention that spider silk does, unfortunately. Right. It's funny because my other uh, shark expert, you know, Dana Errett, who used to be at our museum, yeah. Yeah. you know, I, we always talked about it in terms of charismatic megafauna mm -hmm. and what all the other animals that aren't as charismatic and mega uh, could be contributing. That, Absolutely. That... Bacteria. My goodness. Yeah. And, and I think bacteria you... are charismatic. I might be weird. <laughs> I can tell you as someone who made a t-shirt for the actual Crimson Tide that it does not translate very well on a t-shirt. A dinosaur yeah. tide like is not a charismatic 
emblem on a t-shirt. But the point here is the charisma is in the what they have to offer, like the future of all species and not just humanity. But that, absolutely. We, we often go down science fiction roads because we're both big fans of it. But it, right. I just started thinking about all the food that would be required to bioengineer right. were we ever to have to leave Earth to save the species. So right. all yeah, of so that stuff is absolutely essential and we're losing it quickly. Right, so exactly. Let's introduce a charismatic animal that some folks might not be so familiar with. So you have another article uh, called Walking, Swimming and Hitching a Ride, the Phylogenetics and the Biogeography of the Walking Shark Genus. Hemicillium? Did I say yeah, that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yes. 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 I'm very yeah. proud yeah. of myself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In marine and freshwater research. So what in the world is a walking shark and where might people encounter them and do people encounter them like on the beach? Warn our listeners where this might happen. So you're most likely to see them in aquaria. Mm. They're epaulette sharks and they've got these little marks on their shoulders and they're not very big. They're probably about uh, three or four feet long maximum. They live in shallow water with a lot of them in northern Australia and around Papua New Guinea. They're usually in water that's less than about 60 feet. It can sometimes be in water that's as shallow as six feet. And they sort of walk along the bottom with their fins. And uh, it's quite interesting because the way that they walk in opposition with the front right and the back left fin is very much like vertebrates. And then they, they bend their spine accordingly. And they're, they're fascinating animals. We looked at a phylogeny of them. So basically, we get sequence from the various different species of epaulette sharks and deduce using DNA sequence comparisons who's related to who. And then, you know, once we have this sort of family tree of species, we can see which ones branched off first and where they're found. And maybe they went to Australia. Maybe they originated in Papua New Guinea and then came across the Torres Strait. And so we can reconstruct the history of these animals' movements. And actually, the epaulette shark is one for which there's a lot of developmental biology work. And I recently collaborated with a group from Australia and we've sequenced their genome. And the Australians do wonderfully careful work. We're interested in actually getting what's called the phase of the genome. So they want to know which is the maternal component because the genome's got, you know, the mother's contribution and the father's contribution. And they wanted to know which was which. And normally we just get an animal and sequence it. Some parts of the sequence is polymorphic. You know, it's got a, you know, a T maybe from the father and a C from the mother. And we don't know which one's which. And then there's something called recombination where the bits swap over at, at meiosis when the gametes are made. So it's quite hard to know which is the father and which is the mother. But the Australians need to know, and that's called the phase. We need to know which the strands are. And so the Australians had been breeding them, and they basically gave us a pup, a little pup, whose genome we sequenced. And we knew the mum that laid the eggs, and we knew the dad that fertilized them. So we've got the pup's genome, which has got both of them, and we've got the sequence from the dad and the sequence from the mum. And so in the pup, we can actually see which contributions are from the father and which are from the mother. And so the Australians are using that to actually understand the developmental biology of these little guys. I'm an evolutionary biologist, so I like to understand how things diversified and became different. And so I wanted to reconstruct the evolutionary tree and find out where these little guys came from. And some of them, like Frazanetti, is found in a particular region. And some of them are found in very restricted ranges. So why are some species found in just a tiny little part of the world? And other ones, Oscillatum, is found all the way across northern Australia. So why does this little guy 
just stay in one little place and doesn't go anywhere else. And this one, you know, goes far and wide across northern Australia all the way down to Queensland. Are there any aspects of its biology? Is it habitat? Does the little one specialize in a food source, which is just found in that particular area where the other one's a little bit more sort of uh, less picky and can move over the subject? So by looking at the ranges and the evolutionary history and tying the timing of when these splits occurred, we can say, ah, look, this split happened 3 million years ago or 30 million years ago. This was a time when the sea level was lower there was more coastline they could actually traverse across. So from the DNA actually gives us not only who's related to who, but when they split. And so we calibrate these trees and find out what the temporal component is. So that's what I'm interested in doing is, in some sense, I'm a, a historian mm. using technology to understand what the history of species are. So it's at a very sort of coarse level. We're not looking at the history of populations or a pedigree but we're looking at a pedigree of species, how this group came to be where they are. If I can paraphrase what I took out of the article is you have this water environment where there seems to be just infinite opportunities for gene flow, and yet we have speciation taking place. And Absolutely. why? Is it because of their sort of habit of being shallow sort of plotters? I wouldn't, I don't know if walking is the, the right thing, but they can occupy an environment where they're relatively safe but if they leave that environment, they may be relatively unsafe. And so they have a pretty circumscribed distribution. Each species, maybe with the exception of the one you said, is all over Australia. Yeah, is that right? yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that's possible. And we don't know evolution biology. We don't know yeah. what's driving it. But absolutely, for some reason, you know, one species is really restricted and the others aren't. And we hmm. know that a lot of pelagic species can move. But if the environment for a species that's restricted to shallow water, you know, shallow water heats up more quickly, they can't go deep because there's no food. So as water heats up, they're going to die because they yeah. can't go into the shallow water. There's no food for them. And so the shallow water animals are restricted in ways that deep water animals aren't or animals that can actually tolerate different depths. I mean, a classic example of that are sawfishes. Sawfishes are these just wonderful creatures. They're rays with a big, long rostrum and the teeth sticking on the side. And they used to be all along the coast, across the Alabama coast, from Texas all the way down to Florida and all the way up to New York about 70 years ago. And these things, they are bizarre looking. They, they make dinosaurs look kind of easy. And yet you don't really find them in more than 300 feet of water. So they're easy to catch with all of the trawling along the continental shelves. You know, when people are fishing for shrimp and other things in that particular level, you know, they scoop up the sawfishes and some people targeted them. And uh, now they're actually protected and they're doing much better. They're actually coming back, which is really good. But yeah, they've got nowhere to go. Sawfishes can't do like a white shark and just go offshore. There's nothing for them there. And so they've been adversely impacted by trawling pressures, hmm. whereas other animals that are a bit more versatile and are not habitat specific are not. You mentioned Tethan origins, right? So the Tethys, yeah, 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 Tethys, yeah. the Tethys Sea, what the Mediterranean Red Sea used to be called before they... That, that's right. Yeah. So so they have, one, that says they're really ancient, two, they're really far away from from that part of the world. That's right. So so there's two things, you know, we, we tend to think of the world uh, static, right? But the, mm. the continents have been colliding around and moving different places. And so if there's a continent, you know, that moved from, you know, near the equator 
down further towards the southern hemisphere and some of these animals just are on the coastline they could hitch a ride with it it's not that they swam from the mediterranean you know down to to these places they were just hitching a ride on some of these islands right the flip side of having a very restricted distribution and being very fragile and not being able to deal with things is that we know they can't swim across these open areas it's a little bit like if you've got a freshwater fish and it occurs in North America and Australia, and it's the same one, you could scratch your head and say, how did they get to those two places, right? Mm. And because the, the freshwater fish can't tolerate the salt water. And so when we see patterns like this, that was a bad example because Australia has never been in touch with North America, but the fragility of the species allows us to reconstruct how they were colonized. If it's a very versatile animal and it can go in freshwater or salt water, then it's capable of so many different things that the dispersal is not restricted. And so, you know, if it's found in Australia and in North America, you could say, yeah, I probably swam there, you know, so it's not a big deal. So when we find these ones that are very habitat specific and they're found in unusual parts of the world, it's like a goldmine for an evolutionary yeah. biologist. It's like, whoa, they could not possibly have done swam across this area. So yep. but that also brings a really interesting kind of to the modern day as well, and that you all are still finding new species of these walking sharks and that there seems to be ongoing speciation. And we don't know how much this might relate to climate change or if this is some sort of human induced. And, and if maybe you could speculate a little bit about what's going on in the here and now with these guys. Right. The walking sharks, the, the center of biodiversity is near the Bird's Head Peninsula in Papua New Guinea, which is this unbelievably biodiverse part of the world. Some friends of mine, colleagues, Mark Erdman calls it a species pump. It's part of the world where so much speciation has happened because it's a very dynamic environment. The currents change, the depth changes, there's sea level changes, and there's changing all the time. And that creates new niches, new opportunities for these animals to exploit. And so its dynamism actually chops up the habitat in such a way that populations which would be homogeneous across a broad area are separated and they're isolated. And with isolation comes speciation. And so we think that some of the ongoing speciation in these epaulette sharks, these walking sharks, may be the diversity is centered in this particular region of northwest Papua New Guinea. And uh, we think it's because they're reflecting the dynamics of the area, as is the case for so many coral reef fishes. So that's what's driving it. Now, in terms of climate change, I think many animals are affected by climate change, but my sense is that sharks are less so. Sharks, you know, they're generally large animals and the pelagic sharks can move, right? And so mm. when people say, are sharks gonna die out because of climate change, of all of the organisms, the pelagic sharks are probably not likely to. They'll go somewhere else, right? So until the planet's completely devoid of decent habitat, I think they're gonna be all right. Animals basically move and migrate to follow food or because of breeding opportunities. And so it's quite possible that some of their food sources don't do very well in certain climates. And when the water heats up or there's an infusion of fresh water, they'll go somewhere else. And the sharks will follow them. They'll go to wherever these animals are. And they can also switch prey targets, you know, so they'll get to a place and they'll eat something else. So I think the sharks actually are pretty resilient. The lineage has been identifiable for 400 million years. They've been through the Permian extinction. They've been through the Cretaceous extinction and they're still around. And what's really fascinating about them is there's only 1,200 species of sharks and rays. And the split between the rest of vertebrates is 400 million years old. So one branch of this split gave rise to sharks and rays 
The other branch, the rest of vertebrates, you know, birds and mammals and bony fishes and amphibians. And that group's got about 70,000 species and sharks have got, you know, 1,200. So one part of this tree has got 70,000 animals of species and the other only 1,000. And the one with 1,000, these animals live a long time. They don't have many pups. It's ridiculous. They should be extinct. If you live a long time, you don't have your pups till 20 years old, you don't have many offspring, but yet they're around. How have they done that? Do they have some special powers? You know, what are the tricks that, that these animals can do to survive all these extinctions? Well, one of the things is they're big and they can move so they can go to other places. But we also think that epigenetically, we think that they do some really clever tricks. We think that genetically or genomically, when the conditions change, they can switch on different genes. There was some work done by some skates you know, by a chap called Jackie Lighton four or five years ago. And he showed that skates in different temperatures, just 10 degrees different, expressed completely different genes. So it's almost as if these animals, when it gets cold, they can put on a, a parka. When it gets hot, they can put on their bikini, right? So if that's the case, if these animals can adapt within an individual and put on different genes to deal with different environments, then speciation is not going to affect them that much, right? Speciation is a consequence of selection, you know, forcing some to die and some not to die. Mm. But if they can handle lots of different environments, then speciation is going to be a lot slower because they're going to be able to tolerate these different conditions. So we speculate that that's why there's not as many sharks as the rest of vertebrates. But the walking sharks are different. They're the example that may prove the rule. They seem to be sort of speciating. So what's going on with walking sharks? So we want to have a look at the epigenomes of walking sharks and you know see if they can put on a bikini or they can you know, deal with different temperatures. We talk about how we are uniquely flexible that has led to our adaptive radiation and success, but it sounds like sharks are a great analog for thinking about flexibility at a genetic level with staying right. power. Right. So, so this is speculation. I don't know if it's true, but this is where we're going. I'm very good at speculating <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I just want to be sure that people don't think that this is what's happening, you know, if anybody yeah. listens to the podcast, but this is what we think is happening. Certainly, the observation that's very clear is there's not many species relative to the other ones, and they've weathered two major extinctions. So the question is, how did they do that? Yeah. So my speculations are a suggestion, a hypothesis that needs to be tested. I think that the more you look, the more you see, and we just have not looked at so many different forms of life. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important to keep them around so that smarter people than us with better technologies in the future can learn about you know, how we can be better stewards of the world that we live in. Last question, how do people find out more about oh, what yes. you do? Well, you can go to the website at the Florida Museum of Natural History, the, the FPSR, the, the Florida Program for Shark Research. And we've got a lot of the research projects that we're working on and uh, the papers that we've published and shows what the students are doing and about the shark attack files. We manage the mm. shark attack mm. files for the whole world. And you can FPSR. see some of that collection of jaws. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gavin, thank you so much. Like, we don't get to hear about sharks ever. And so this was actually really exciting. And I learned a ton because I don't study sharks. And this was fascinating on many, many levels. And thank you again so much for being on the show. Have a wonderful rest of your trip to Alabama. Well, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.